This sermon, A Single Purpose, was preached on Sunday, November 28, 2021, by Pastor Derek Overstreet. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Really, we could preach chapter 3 as a unit, um, but as I dug into it, it just seemed good and right to break it up and So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10, lots of drama in our text this morning, and then next week we will look to Peter's explanation as he preaches his second powerful sermon in the book of Acts. But this morning we're going to limit ourselves to the first 10 verses. So would you stand with me with your Bibles opened to Acts 3? Verse 1, Luke continues to tell the story of the church in her infancy. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we... We turn to your word this morning, and we ask that you would cause it to bear fruit in our hearts. Lord, we want to be shaped, transformed, conformed to who you are and what you have called us to. And so, Lord, We ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. I ask for a fresh filling of your Spirit even now for the purpose of preaching your word in a way that is faithful to the word, in a way that is passionate, passion drawn from truth, not merely emotion. Lord, I pray that you would fill everyone in this room freshly with your spirit. 
for listening, hearing, embracing, and applying your word. Lord, even as we sung this morning, you are worthy. Lord, you are worthy of our full attention this morning. You are worthy of our minds this morning. You are worthy of our affections this morning. You are worthy of our repentance this morning. You are worthy of our confidence and our faith this morning. And so fill us with your spirit as we now position ourselves to be engaged by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, as we have seen, there is considerable confusion in the minds of men and women with respect to the message of the gospel. And that is the tragedy of tragedies. This is, of course, the masterpiece of the devil. As the Bible shows us from start to finish, the devil is the great antagonist of God. He has one ambition, one great idea, and that is to bring ruin into God's perfect creation. He did it at the beginning when God created the world, and he has been most assiduous in his efforts ever since the Son of God came into the world to bring in a new creation. Throughout the centuries, he has been busy doing everything he can to cause confusion with regard to the gospel. The devil's supreme achievement is to bring this confusion into the church herself. It is not surprising that he confuses the world outside. We do not expect anything better there. But it is terrible that he should succeed with the church herself. And so, let me emphasize again, perhaps the greatest of all needs in these days is the need to know exactly what Christianity is and what the Christian church is. Well, I believe that Martin Lloyd-Jones was right then, and he's still right today. Confusion about Christianity, confusion about the church abounds. What is the message of the church? What is her mission? What, what should the world expect from the church? And make no mistake about it, the world has expectations of the church. Most importantly, what should the church's expectations be of herself? What should our expectations be of the church, beginning with this church? Well, in an undeniable and unequivocal way, those questions are answered as we join the church in her infancy here in Acts 3. We encounter an unusual act of God that is meant to draw awe and wonder to himself. It's called a miracle. That's what a miracle is. Now, in Scripture, miracles occur really primarily for two reasons. One, miracles, a miracle is, is a sign. It's a sign of the, the presence and the power of God. Just read the Gospels. Miracles occurred to declare, if you will, the presence and power of God in his son, Jesus Christ. The second primary reason why 
miracles occur is to preach truth. Miracles teach. Miracles illustrate spiritual realities. Just think about Jesus when he rose Lazarus from the dead. An amazing thing. A miracle of miracles, if you will. But he immediately explained, right? He immediately taught the reality of his own death and his own resurrection on behalf of sinners to really allow that miracle to preach what he was about to do. Well, the miracles, the miracle before us today does both. And in particular, this miracle preaches and illustrates something of the nature and purpose of the church in this world. One of the hardest things for a preacher to do is distill the meaning of a text into one sentence. We call it a propositional statement. So here was my attempt at that this week. I think as we look at these first 10 verses, here's what we are going to learn. The church reveals the unmatched power of God to a powerless world for a single purpose, salvation in Christ. Through the church, God is revealing his unmatched power to a powerless world for one reason alone, the salvation of sinners. At the genesis of this church, this is what Acts 3 establishes as the nature and purpose of her existence. We, we have seen the call to the Great Commission. We have seen the command to wait for the Spirit who will come upon you with power to take the gospel to the known world. We, we watched as Peter preached his first powerful Christ-centered sermon, and the Spirit of God convicted the hearts of thousands, and we saw last week how suddenly this thing called the church, people saved by grace, and now new desires and fresh affections, new purpose for their existence, they, they, they begin to live out the good of what they've received in the power of the Spirit together. And now, now we will see what this is all about. And through the, and though, the, though millennia divide us, today it's not up to us to reshape the nature and purpose of the church, but to preserve it in our own day and age. And so I want us to see two things from this text. We're not going to see everything from this text. Part two will be next week. But here's what I want us to see. Two points this morning if you're taking notes. First of all, the church exists in a powerless world. Second, the church belongs to an all-powerful God. The church exists in a powerless world. As we come to this text, you're probably familiar with this, the, uh, Peter's own words, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. That's very familiar to us, but, but this was just an ordinary day in Jerusalem. As we come to Acts 3, 
This is just a typical day in Jerusalem. It's three in the afternoon. The temple is bustling with people. Peter and John are on their way, most likely to pray with their fellow disciples. And as they arrive, they encounter what they've always encountered, desperate and destitute beggars. Notice verse one again. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering. The beautiful gate was one of the busiest areas of the temple. It was connected to the, the court of Gentiles, which was an area where anyone could go. Anyone could go so long as they acted properly. But it wasn't limited. It was, the, the, the Gentiles themselves were not uh, prohibited to, to be in this part of the temple. And so it was one of the busiest areas of the temple. And, and it's here, this, in this hustle bustle of people, that this ordinary day would turn into an extraordinary moment, both for the lame man and the church. Luke tells us that this, that this man was lame from birth. Pay attention to Luke's details here as he describes this man. He says that, that he was lame from birth. This man never knew life not crippled. He was born this way. He was born paralyzed. Something didn't happen to this man. He was born this way from the womb. He, this man never knew what it was like to walk. And in chapter 4, verse 22, if you read ahead, we learn that this man was over 40 years old. Think about that. For over 40 years, this man woke up, rubbed the sleep from his eyes, and got on with his day knowing that he was a helpless and hopeless man living a pitiful and pointless life with no relief in sight. That was his world for over 40 years. For over 40 years, no one could help this man. No one could cure this man's lameness. No one could cure his greatest Problem. He certainly couldn't help himself. Peter or uh, Luke is very clear. He was carried daily to the gate. He was utterly dependent. He could do nothing for himself. I'm sure that this man could, if you stopped and engaged him, he could probably argue about politics. He could probably debate with you about some of the social issues of the day. He certainly know, knew how to shake a tin can. But he was powerless to make himself walk. His family and friends could carry him to the temple every day, but they couldn't make him walk. Strangers could spare a little change, but they couldn't make him walk. The money could quench the hunger pains bringing temporary satisfaction, but it couldn't make him walk. 
in all the world had to offer, the world was powerless to give this man what he needed most, the ability to walk. This man's physical dilemma is our spiritual dilemma. The Bible often uses sickness as a picture of sinful humanity. Like the leper and the blind man, this lame man teaches us that something is wrong with us. Something serious is wrong with us, and it can't be fixed by us. That there is nothing in this world that can help us remedy what is ultimately wrong with us. The world, including ourselves, are powerless to change our situation. And this really is why the gospel, before it's good news, is actually bad news. The bad news of the gospel is found in this lame beggar. We have a problem that the world is powerless to fix. It's called sin. Sin, beginning in the garden, has destroyed our souls. We are fallen in our sin, and there's nothing that we can do about it to make us whole again, spiritually. There's a movie that I love. It's called The Village. And I've talked about this before. So I actually, this is one of the greatest plot lines for me in, in, in any movie I've ever seen. But if you're not familiar with the movie, uh, it's about a group of people who at some point in their past have been victims of a violent crime. And so it's a large group of people. And so they get together and they set out to create their own utopia. It's called the village because they build their own village. And the idea is that they're going to remove themselves from a violent world. They're going to create a world where they are safe and free from harm. And there is this commitment on the part of these people to do good, to be kind to one another. So they, they build a fence. They even create, I don't know how much I should say because I don't want to ruin the movie. Anyway, I'm not going to spoil it. So I guess I've already spoiled it. So they actually, they actually create this monster that anybody wants to get out of the village Well, they're so scared that they would never attempt because there is this creature out there who will devour them. But guess what happens? At some point in the movie, a young man gets angry with another young man. And he stabs him. And their world is shattered Because they realize they can't create a world where there is no, where there is no wickedness or violence. Because they didn't understand that it's in here. It's in the heart. And when they moved into the village, they brought it with them. 
There's nothing that they could do to cure the heart. Humanity has fallen. No government, no degree of wokeness, no medicine, no legislation, no social programs can cure what ails us. No one is born innocent. Everyone is born sinful. Just like this beggar did not start his life with healthy legs, no one starts life with a clean slate before God. We are inheritors of a dirty slate according to Psalm 51 and Romans 6. We aren't sinners because we began sinning. We sin because we were born sinners. And the world, with all its intellect, with all its books, with all its education and technology, with all its science, with all its money, with all its woke rules, with all its vices, like this lame man, the world with all its activity, is powerless to cure what ails us. We are hopeless, helpless, and useless when it comes to our greatest need. That is knowing God, being accepted by God, doing what needs to be done, to atone for our own sins. It's called inability. Original sin, that idea that sin is so pervasive that it has ruined our very being and separated us from God, leaving us, as Romans 3 says, with with no way to make ourselves right with our own hands. That's our greatest need. And this this lame beggar, this man who from life had this problem that kept him from walking, he is a picture of humanity and the powerlessness of ourselves and this world to fix this dilemma. If you're here this morning, I just want to encourage you. I don't know what what brought you here, except I know that you're not here from, from, guard, from, from the Lord's sovereignty. But I don't know what ails you. I don't know what's hurting inside. I, I don't know what kind of circumstances and situations you left at the front door when you came in and you will go back to the moment you walk out. But here is what I do know. Wherever you're searching, wherever you're looking, maybe it's a bottle, maybe it's pornography, Maybe it's work. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever it is, wherever it is that you're looking to cure what it is that ails you. The Bible teaches us this miracle, this man in the infancy of our church, this story. It doesn't only, it doesn't only reveal the power of God. It reveals the seriousness of our situation before God. And there's only one place to turn. The name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, it's simply a way, it's simply a way to say the power and the authority 
of Jesus. Jesus came, he entered into our fallen humanity. He became human like we are human. He suffered and he, he, he was tempted. Hebrews 4 says, in every way like we are, except that he did not sin. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, he was like us in every way, except that he did not sin. And yet, he gave himself to a bloody death on the cross. And more than that, he gave himself to absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of man making a way to come to his table through faith and repentance, meaning coming, believing in this Jesus, believing that I am a sinner and I am like this lame beggar. (laughs) I have no hope in this world. I can do nothing for my situation except to throw myself at the mercy of Jesus. And not add anything to what he's done, but only receive by faith and the mercy of God what he has done. That's the only place we have to run. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, if if that's you, run to the cross. Because there there is a Savior waiting with open arms. And he has done everything that needs to be done, and he will give you everything that you need. Scripture says, and Peter wrote, he said, we have been given all things for life and godliness. Because of Jesus, by his spirit, through his word. So that's the first thing we see from this Stories that the world, this, this lame beggar represents a world that is powerless to meet our greatest need. But there's hope. The second thing I want us to see is the church belongs to a powerful God. Though, though it exists in a powerless world, she belongs to a powerful God. Notice verse 4 says, And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I love what Peter says. Look at us. You know, when most people encounter, uh, this is true of me, I don't know if it's true of you, but I think when most people encounter a beggar on the street, we look away, <laughs> don't we? We, 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 don't, we avoid eye contact. We, we try not to notice them, usually because we have no intentions of helping them. And there's a little something in us that kind of, come on. <laughs> and so we ignore. But Peter and John, on this morning, on, on this afternoon, Peter and John stop and give their full attention to this man. They stop and they look at him. And verse 5 tells us that the beggar interpreted this this attention 
as a payday. Verse 5 says that, that he expected to receive something from them. No doubt, he, he probably knew. He may very well have known who Peter and John were. This guy hangs out at the temple. No doubt he's heard about Jesus. No doubt he's heard about these people, flames of fire, and they're speaking in tongues, and what is going on in that amazing sermon. And suddenly we went from 120 to over 3,000 people. He did have expectations. He thought he was going to get paid. He thought he was going to be able to fill his belly. But he had no idea. Peter says in verse 4, look at him. Look at us. Look at us. That's something you say when what you are about to say is really important, right? Parents, you know this, right? How many times you look at your kids? Look at me. You need to focus because what I'm about to say, you need to hear. Peter says, look at us. Look at us. Because you are about to receive what no one can, no one has ever, and no one will ever be able to give you. Silver and gold don't have any. But I have a man named Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, in the power and the authority of Jesus, walk. I'm going to give you something that money can't buy. I'm going to give you something this world can't provide. I'm going to give you something infinitely better. Real hope, real healing, real life. Now certainly, this is a a physical miracle. But God's intentions is for us not to stop there. And we'll find that out next week when Peter preaches a sermon and connects the dots between this physical healing and the hope of Jesus Christ. And think about this man. I mean, Peter has just asked him to do what he could not do. We wouldn't blame the guy if he was thinking, get up and hold on. Get up and walk? What what do you mean get up and walk? I've never gotten up and walked. I've been carried. You know. You've seen me down here. I have been carried down here every day for decades. Are you mocking me? If you don't want to give me money, fine. But don't, please don't mess with me. Life is hard enough. Whatever this, whatever this beggar must have been thinking when he heard Peter say, get up and walk, something he couldn't do, something he's never been able to do. Whatever he was thinking, look what happened. Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. 
By the way, Luke is a doctor. Luke knows the human body. Luke knows that even if this man was healed, it was a miracle that he would get up and immediately have strong ankles. If you've ever injured your ankle, if you've ever injured your wrist, you know that there is a period of recovery. (laughs) This man had full strength. And we know that because look what he did. And verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This man who who has never walked a step in his life in an instant of a moment, he has full strength in his legs. He has full strength in his feet. He gets up. He is walking and leaping. He is running, all of which he could never do until he encountered the presence of God power of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 8, it says he entered the temple. (laughs) Imagine that. This man lived his life at the gate. He watched people go in and out all day long. But not him. He was forbidden. And now... Walks into the temple with Peter and John, the place he's never been able to go. And I love what Luke tells us. He's not, wow, this place is nice. for joy. He's making a fool of himself. (laughs) This is not, he's not being discreet. People are going, what is that guy doing? He's praising God. He's the happiest camper in the temple. His life has just been transformed. Hope has come. Life is now his to live in a way in which he has never been able to live it. He can't contain himself. People see him. Verse 9 and 10. No doubt they're wondering, who who is this guy? 
But at some point, they realize that's the guy who sits at the gate. That's the guy who's never been able to walk and sits outside just hoping for a little spare change. Look at him. He's transformed. He's not that man anymore. And they are in awe. They are in wonder. Nobody walks up and says, no, 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 no. we don't leap in the temple. (laughs) Nobody walked up and said, you know what? Glad you're here. You need a shower, though. Nobody said we're grateful to have you, but you need some new clothing. This is a place of reverence. This is a place of holiness. They marveled. They marveled at what happened to him. Now, Peter is going to connect the dots between this miracle and the gospel in his second sermon. We're going to look at that next week. Today, I want to consider how this miracle speaks to us today with two questions. The first one is this. Do we gather aware What we're doing right now, do we come together aware that we have been redeemed and indwelt by an all-powerful God for the praise of his glory? Alistair Begg said, the world needs to see more leaping and praising in the church. I agree wholeheartedly. And I want us as a church to to, to take this seriously, to, to really ponder our own souls and ask the question, what, what, what are my expectations when I gather with my church? Is this just another meeting? Or do we expect the Spirit to work in us with the power of heaven? Paul was very clear when he wrote to the Ephesians in his introduction. He said, well, he prayed that they would come into a deeper knowledge and experience of the power that is at work in them. And he goes on to say, it is the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. (laughs) Are we aware of that? Are we aware that when we gather, the Lord gathers us with intentions Are we just checking off the Sunday box or do we expect to leave here different than when we arrived? Why? Because the sermon was so great? No, because the songs were so impacting? No, because it was so great to catch up with Joe? No, because we have been engaged by an all-powerful God. What are our expectations? Do we gather aware of who we are and who God is. 
I think we can ask the same question of community groups. What do you expect when you gather with God's people in someone's front room who are recipients of his infinite power for the purpose ultimately of bringing him praise and glory? To go back to the question that was posed to us last week, if you are losing your sense of wonder and expectation, begin here, begin here. Once, you and I were the hopeless and helpless lame beggar. But then the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit came to us. Are we afraid to leap and dance and praise? Now, don't start dancing up and down the aisles or That's question number one. For ourselves as a church, for us individually, do we gather aware that we have been redeemed and indwelt by an all-powerful God for the praise of his glory? Here's the second question I want us to consider. As individuals and collectively as a church, what are we giving to the world around us, to our city, to our community, to our neighbor? I said earlier, the world has expectations of the church. Just like this lame beggar, he went to the temple and when he saw Peter and John giving him attention, he had an expectation. Money, they're going to give me something. The world has expectations of the church, what we should preach, how we should live, what we should focus on, when we should speak up and when we should shut up what we should be talking about and what we shouldn't be talking about. Just like this lame man had expectations of money, the world has expectations of you and your church. I want to remind us why we exist and why our expectations should be of the church. Good words from a German theologian. The goal of Christian ministry is ultimately not that the poor, the sick, and the depressed, and the challenged are being helped, but that they can fully participate in the community of the people of God as believers who have found true salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Now listen, don't, 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 don't get this man wrong. That's not to say there's never a place for monetary or social help. It doesn't mean there's not a place for philosophical dialogue. It is to say that those things are not what we are here to provide. Those things can be means, but they are not our mission. Helping your neighbor who is struggling financially can be a means. Just as this miracle was a means for Peter to preach the gospel. But helping your neighbor financially is not the mission. The mission 
The mission is about eternal salvation, not temporary solutions. God is much bigger than that. (laughs) His plan is eternal. And he's made it clear that that plan goes through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. Humanity's dilemma is not in the pocketbook. It's not in upbringing. It's not in the lack of opportunities for everybody. It's here. It's in the heart. The soul has been paralyzed by sin. So how does the church be the church? Well, here's what I submit to you. We humbly, courageously, and continually preach the saving name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the infallible word of God. That's what we're here to do. We humbly, courageously, and continually preach the saving name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the infallible word of God. Listen, there there are lame beggars all around us. They get up every morning and do the same thing. They go to the gate. They go to their office. They go to their classroom. They go to the soccer fields every Saturday. And even though they don't admit it, and at times they might not look like it, They are hurting. They are searching. That's why work, alcohol, drugs, pornography, and gambling addictions are so prevalent. That's why adultery and divorce rates are so high. That's why depression and loneliness is so common. People are hopeless and helpless beyond the ability of silver and gold and anything else that this world offers. And they get up, and every morning they go to the gate, just doing what they think they need to do, just trying to get by because the world is powerless to help them. The world might be able to give them temporary satisfaction, but that's it. By the way, addictions, adultery, depression, loneliness. Can I just make sure we all understand something? Christians are not immune to those things. We are not immune to those. Those realities, the temptations to all of those are part of living in a fallen world. Do you know what the difference is? The difference is that in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we are not helpless and hopeless to fall victim to those things. We have the power of God through his spirit, and we have the word of God as a lamp that directs our feet, and we have the hope of Christ that is unending to deal with those things effectively. So let's not for a moment think that we're immune 
to those things that too often characterize those outside the church. The point is this. You and I, the church, have the cure in Christ. Like Peter, we must reach out and speak. Reach out and speak. It's, it's, it's our hands. Did you notice that? It's Peter's hand. He reaches out and lifts him up. He speaks the name of Jesus. It's the same with us. It's our hands. It's, it's our words. Each person every day here must decide to reach out and share Christ. That's a personal decision that we make. It's one reason why, why the one question that shapes everything that we do around here is how does this activity, how does this ministry, how does this church effort help us advance the gospel? That's the decision point because that's our purpose. And here's why we can have confidence in reaching out and speaking because we reach and speak in the authority and power of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Peter didn't have confidence in himself. Peter's just doing what God called him to do. Reach out. Take an interest. Invest in that person. And speak. All the weight in verse 7, or all the weight in verse 6, is in these words. In the name of Jesus. That's where all the weight is. In the name of Jesus. It's the same with us. We reach out and speak in the authority and power of Jesus, knowing that through the Spirit we are connected to the power of God. We, we, we have experienced this saving power in our own lives, so we can attest to it, not only in our own salvation, but in our Spirit-empowered lives as Christians, this is the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones would go on to say that this, these first 10 verses, this is an authentic picture of Christianity and the church. This is the church. Living in the good of and giving the world what the world cannot give itself pointing the world beyond all that it is and offers only in vain conceit to Jesus Christ of Nazareth who makes the lame man walk and the dead man live for God.